we are back again this week talking about the book of Judges. Now, we gave a little bit of an introduction last week, and I asked the question, who is leading you? Who's leading your life? Who's in charge of the decisions that you make? Well, I mean, immediately we think, well, you said the very key words in that question are the answers, Pastor Gary. Who? Well, me, obviously. My life. Who's in control? My life. But if we've made a decision to follow Jesus, we have surrendered that control over to the Lordship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He becomes the guiding the guiding principles, the guiding standard in our lives. And we rely on his faithfulness, not our own, to live in obedience. In order for us to trust God, we lean in the faithfulness of Jesus. We lean into the strength and power of the Holy Spirit instead of relying on our own strengths and abilities. And so we've been, we're going to start this journey through the incredibly intense, sometimes strange, and again, a little bit more intense book of Judges. Because throughout the entire book, we see that the faithfulness of God in the covenant that he made with Abraham and the covenant that he made, which is a lifelong commitment Let's say that again, covenant, a lifelong commitment to be faithful and to provide and to always offer salvation to the people of Israel. And that's a covenant promise that he made generations before. And as we will learn, God will provide individuals through the book of Judges who are called, believe it or not, Judges, to help bring Israel back into their faithfulness into their level of commitment in this covenant that they've made with God. And so we're going to look at some of those today. But before we get there, we're going to look at three judges in particular today. Three, uh, one story is uh, kind of like really quick, whatever. The third story is just one verse, one paragraph, but just really unique. And then the second story right in the middle, the good part of the sandwich. You know, we don't need the sandwich for the bread on either side or even the mustard or mayo, whatever you put on the bread first. But we're going to go for the good stuff. If it's a grilled cheese, you really want that cheese. That's the best part. Really, a grilled cheese sandwich is a reason to eat cheese, right? Am I wrong? Tell me if I'm wrong. Or you put some bacon on that grilled cheese sandwich. The best part of it, it's a good excuse to have bacon. Just throwing that out there. So we're going to do that with our message today. We're going to just do a quick recap, look at some overview kind of things, and then we're going to look at three judges. We're going to tell three stories. And we're going to tell one that's interesting, and we're going to finish with one that's interesting. But we're going to sandwich the good stuff in a story about a judge who is incredibly interesting. Now, he himself is not that interesting, but his story is unbelievable. You're not even going to believe that it's in the Bible. Now, if you want the weird stuff of judges, and you want to look at how far gone Israel goes, feel free to read ahead in this book particular take a look at chapter 19 and let me know what you think of it and get back to me there's some pretty crazy stuff that happens in the bible it's not all noah's ark rainbows and two of every kind of animal and sun shining kind of stories read chapter 19 and you tell me what you think of the book of judges and we'll have a conversation another time but we're only on chapter three we're in chapter three today all right 
So let's recap of the overview. What is happening in Israel at this time? During the time of the judges, it's after Joshua has passed away. Joshua was the leader who took over from Moses, who God used to lead the children of God out of, out of, out of Egypt, through the wilderness, and all the amazing stories. He then used Joshua to take control and lead the people into the next phase of occupying the land that God had promised to them. But what we discover in the very beginning of Judges is that they are entering into an incomplete conquest. So God has promised them the land. Joshua has fought most of the major battles, basically cleared most of the way for them. But the job isn't quite finished yet. It's an incomplete conquest. And we can ask the question, well, why did they not finish the job? If you were to turn this camera around, maybe I should just do that anyway, you will look into our main meeting room here at the church building, and you will see that we have done lots of work over the last year, right? We have no carpet, we painted the walls, we changed the lights, we moved our tech booth, all of those kinds of things. But if you turn the camera around, you will notice that the floor is not done. It is incomplete. It is a work in progress. First thing that we learn is that vision takes time. There's not necessarily a hurry to fulfill God's plans because we know that God's plans will always be faithful, but it takes time. But what we realize is that in this incomplete conquest is that they did not complete it because they had a lack of faith. They had a lack of faith. And I think what it really comes down to is they started to believe in themselves and their own capacity to handle the challenges before them instead of leaning in to God a little bit more. Instead of leaning into God and saying, okay, Lord, you have brought us this far. You took our ancestors out of Egypt. You took them across the Red Sea. You took them through the wilderness. You took down the walls of Jericho. You helped them cross the Jordan River. Reverse those last two stories, by the way. You've done all of these things. You've, you've conquered our greatest enemies so far. I think we got this. And the minute that they begin to give up their humility, pride sets in. They no longer put their faith in God. And so they are in a position where the work is incomplete. Now, I have a bedroom downstairs of my house that I am working on for one of our kids to eventually move into. And that bedroom needed a closet, and so I'm working on a closet, which meant punch a hole in the wall, build up some other walls, put some drywall up, a couple other things along the way, yada, 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 yada. That project currently is incomplete. But I know over time, over work, over patience, over work, a little bit of sweat, probably a few more cuts and bruises on the hands, the project will be brought through to completion. Because I know and I have a process in place to make it happen. Now, if you continually read through the book of Judges, we don't know who the author is. But we can kind of surmise that they are writing this book many years later. They're, they're basically retelling the stories that they've heard. And it's likely taking place during the reign of King, King Saul or King David. Maybe even during the time of King Solomon. A time where Israel did really well having a king, having a godly leader. Not always godly, but having a leader, a king. They're very much pro-monarchy. And so many times you will see, out of this book, they will say things like, 
and they were unfaithful and they did not have a king. And so we see that they are very much pro-monarchy, pro-leader, and that's sort of an underlying theme that we see, which is why I asked the question last week, who is leading you? You know, our moral standards as believers are set by God. You know, we pull out this book that we call the Bible, and we see that God clearly lays out blueprints for our lives, right? The Bible, B-I-B-L-E, or as you may have heard the cheesy Christian saying many years ago, basic instructions before leaving earth. Basic instructions before leaving earth, right? So these give us uh, really the heart of God. What does God really want from us? You can find it all in this book that we call the Bible. But God is the one that sets the moral standards. And the moment that we start to turn away from God, the moment we actually start to rebel, we begin to create our own morality, and we base what is right and wrong based on what the majority of people think or want. And so you can see that in our governments today and democracies. If the people want a certain thing and most of the people want to go a certain way, maybe not right away. We can talk about politics and really democracy another time. But what happens is when the majority of people want something, the majority of people get what they want. Now, again, politics aside, generally speaking, that is what happens. We change our laws based on a vote of majority. But however, God's standards are different than that. God's morals are set by who? God, the Father, the creator of the universe, the one who created you and me, the one who knows you and me best is the one who has set a standard for our lives, not to hold us back, not to harness us or keep us down, but to propel us forward, to lift us up, because he knows what is good, what is noble, what is perfect, and what is right for your life and my life. And so he knows exactly what is right for Israel. And yet Israel, and, and this is the, what we need to pay attention to today, is that God gives Israel the choice. God gives Israel the choice the same way he gives you or I the choice to follow him. God's not a dictator telling us what we have to do. He's giving us a choice. All right, so they're in the land. It's an incomplete conquest. They haven't done all that they need to do. They haven't gone the distance. It's like running a marathon, which is what, 26 and a half miles or something like that. It's like running the marathon and stopping at 25 miles or stopping a mile short and giving up. So you know what? I've done. Look how far I've come. You know what? God wants you to go a little bit further. He wants you to complete the race. It's why Paul, I think, tells us in the New Testament, run with patience the race that is set before you. He fully expects that you will finish the race. And as believers, when we finish the race, we'll hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. God wants us to go the distance. He wants us to complete the conquest of this earth. He wants us to overcome the challenges that we face in this world and in this life. Don't stop. Keep going. Go the distance. Will it be hard work? Yes, it will. Will it be challenging? Yes, it will. Will people rise up against you and ridicule you and mock you? Probably, most likely. Will they disown you? It's a very real possibility. But keep going. Don't give up any ground. Let God do in your life what you know he has called you to do. Because he is God, we are not. We have surrendered ourselves to him because he knows what is good, perfect, noble, and right. All right, 
We see this pattern that takes place in Israel. They go through this same cycle again and again and again and again and again. It's kind of like when you're driving through the bush and you get stuck. And you know what happens? You spin your tires, you spin your tires. And then what happens? You get out, you turn around, and you got to go back. Which means you got to go through that all again. They go through this pattern. They live life really well. And then they rebel against God. Uh, not just make a mistake along the way. I'm talking like flat out rebellion against God. They sin. They do what is right in their own eyes. We'll see that again and again and again through this book. They sin and then they get conquered. They have some sort of disaster. Some sort of army rises up against them. They become slaves, oppressed, living under a foreign ruler. Life gets difficult. Life gets hard. It sucks. It's bad. And so what happens? They repent. They say, oh God, we are aware. We are keenly aware that we are no longer Lord, in your perfect will. We are no longer where you want us to be. And so they repent. They recognize their need for God. And repent simply means this. Look, this is where we're going, God. This is what happened. And now I'm turning around and I'm going this way. I'm looking at the higher things of God. I was going this way and it led to destruction. I'm repenting, turning around and going this way towards you, God. They repent. And what does God do? He's faithful and he delivers them. And he delivers them through these judges. Faith is a journey. Faith is a process. It takes time. Keep going. Don't give up. Remain faithful to God because he has remained faithful to us. John 15, 4, our theme verse of the year. Remain in me as I remain in you. Remain faithful to God. Keep going. Don't stop. Don't find yourselves making the same mistakes over and over and over and over and over and over again. This was a transitional time for Israel. They are moving from the wilderness, from a nomadic tribal sort of confederacy, a union of, of tribes and states, so to speak. And they are starting their infancy as a holy nation set up by God. And transitions are difficult. If you've ever had to move houses, if you've ever had to go from here to here and, and you know, pack up all your stuff, put it in a truck, move it, and gone through that process, I've done it too many times, it's, it's a difficult process. There's bumps along the way, things get broken, things get lost, you kind of go a little bit crazy, you end up, you know, transitions are just costly, a lot of money, all of these things. And so they're in this season of transition. You know, they were people who were slaves, who went to be nomads, to being settled into this new land. And in this new land, they were looking for stability. They were looking for security. Uh, in the midst of all that, they were looking for well-being. Think of it this way. A young man and a young woman, they, 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 they leave their mother and their father's house. Talked about this a couple weeks ago, Valentine's Day. They get married and they... What do they do when they want to have a family? I mean, there's many ways that we do this nowadays, but we want to provide a safe and secure place to start a family. So in many cases, we buy a house, we build a house, we, we secure a place that is safe, that is comfortable, that provides security and stability. And, and that takes time. That's hard work. You know, we have to have an, a job. You have to be able to save some money and and put down, you know, a deposit for a mortgage or save all your money and buy the house cash, whatever, whatever you do. It takes time. It takes work. It takes energy. It takes planning. It's a transition time, but it's well worth it for the end goal. 
It's in this transition that we see, though, they begin to wander. They begin to waver because they start to get comfortable. They're almost there, but they haven't quite arrived. But they, they get to the point where this is good enough. All right, we're good enough. We're just going to sit here in this moment. And then it leads to conflict. They get comfortable. They haven't finished the race. They start fighting with the nations that they were supposed to conquer. And then we see by the end of the book of Judges, they start fighting within themselves. And we see a civil war take place, not to give too much away. But their allegiance to Yahweh, their allegiance to God, means embracing the things of God means embracing the community that God brings. So under God's rule, God had this design for their lives, designed for his nation, that they would be a community of many tribes, but they would live in unity together as one nation under God. He had this desire that they would live in equality. Not one person would be better or higher in society than the other, and that they would be a loving, welcoming nation to serve God in all that they say and all that they do. Well, what happened was they didn't conquer the land and they decided to live with other nations. They didn't fully complete their task. And so they started to be influenced by the, the social and economical uh, processes of the other nations, which led to the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer, and every man for himself. It's more about me than it is about my neighbor. Sounds a little bit of a familiar story we'll talk about another time. They began to embrace foreign gods and Baals. And they say the word Baals because it meant that there was multiple temples and multiple cities and all of the tribes start to worship these other gods and they forget about Yahweh, their creator. They're under foreign social and economic systems. Me first, you second. They were persuaded with power and influence and autonomy. So God has a solution. What's that solution? God rises up some heroes. Now, not the kind of heroes that you would expect. These people are heroes that are really not the people that you would expect. And we'll get to that in just a minute. There's some odd choices for people. Uh, but yet their achievements all lead to one thing. And they all reveal the miracle of God's power and the miracle of God's existence. So God chooses some pretty weird, strange picks. You know, in the first draft of, 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 of judges that he picks, they're a little bit strange. Now, they're not certainly perfect by any means. Some of them are a little bit out there, and we'll get to that for the next couple weeks. But today, we're going to see that he chose uh, Ehud, who was a left-handed misfit. He chose Deborah, which, you know, was a woman leading in a man's led society and culture. Kind of a crazy choice. Like, wow, God, we expected you to send a man and you gave us a woman. You know, we've come a long way in, in society today. But back then, that was totally unheard of. And yet God used a woman to carry out his plans and purposes. He uses Gideon, who was a coward, to fight some incredible battles. He uses Samson who, again, we'll get to in a couple weeks here, who ends up being a blind prisoner and yet delivers Israel from the hands of the Philistines. These are the heroes that God chooses to use. Now, let's, let's get to the Bible here. Gary's talked too long already. Let's get to the Bible. Judges chapter 3, and this is what it says. These are the nations that the Lord left 
to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. So remember, Joshua has passed away. They fought many battles. And so this next generation has, rise, has, been, has kind of been coming up and has been raised up. And they haven't fought the battles against the Canaanites. And so God, you know, as, as much as I say this was an incomplete conquest, you know, there is some strategy here that God uses. So verse 1, he says, he left the nations to test Israel. Verse 4, they were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands, which he had given their ancestors through Moses. All right. So here's, here's what you got to know. The moment that you choose to follow Jesus, you're going to be challenged. You're going to be tested. Your past is going to tap on the shoulder and say, what's going on? People from your past are going to show up and go, what's going on with you? What's happening? What is what is taking place in your life? It's going to happen. And so Israel leaves them. He says, I'm taking these nations to test them and see if they will obey the Lord's commandments. Well, you can guess by this point that they don't, that they simply fall short and they begin to turn their attention to other gods. All right. So we're going to look at God's solution to the problem. God's solution to the problem. He rises, raises up judges to help lead the people back to covenant relationship with him. So here we're going to go. The first judge, Othniel. Othniel, however you want to say that. O-T-H-N-I-E-L. Judges chapter 3, verse 7. Let's hear his story today. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Big shock there. You're going to hear that again and again and again and again. They forgot the Lord their God and served Baals and Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, so he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, the king Aram Natharim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. So just to pause there for a minute. God delivers the Israelites from the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt generations before this. It is God's desire that his people would live in freedom and independence from foreign rule. That is God's plain desire for them. If they're willing to walk in obedience, he gives them the option. So he comes against eight years they live under this king. And here's the good news. Verse 9. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. And this is important. So he raises up a, a young man who's from the tribe of Judah, by the way, which is the strongest tribe in the, out of all the 12 tribes of Israel. They raise up this man, Othniel. And it says in verse 10, the spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Risham, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Canaz, died. All right, pretty straightforward story. They rebelled against God. They get oppressed by a foreign king. They repent and they call out to God. God rises, raises up a deliverer, Othniel, a judge. And he gives his spirit to him and he leads them in battle and they are successful and they experience peace for the next 40 years. Pretty straightforward story. Again, we keep going. We read that once again, the pattern repeats itself. Verse 12. Again, 
The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Amorites and Amalek, Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, took possessions of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to, the, to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. So they go 40 years of peace, another 18 years of suffering under a foreign king. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. He gave them a deliverer, Ehud. Say Ehud. Throw that in the comments. E-H-U-D. Ehud. This guy's cool. Really cool story coming up. This is what's unique about him. He is a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite. All right, let's pause there. We're going to talk about this story. So, 40 years go by. They live in peace. They turn away from God. They're in captivity against the king of Moab. He takes over, and they're oppressed for 18 years. They cry out to God. He delivers them and he sends Ehud. And they all look at Ehud and go, why him? Benjamin. He's a Benjaminite, which means he is from the weakest, smallest tribe of Israel. God, is this the guy you really want to save us? This is the guy you sent to deliver us? And then there's another abnormality that Ehud has. And we see it because they talk about it. He's left-handed. Where are all my lefties out there? Just raise your hand in the comments. If you're left-handed today, we want you to know we love you. We, we are thankful for you. But in those days, being left-handed was considered a handicap. It was considered that you were handicapped. Did you know that most U.S. presidents, if not all except for the last, I believe, I could be wrong, were left-handed? It's pretty fascinating. But here we got this left-handed Benjaminite. He is from the weakest, smallest tribe of Israel, and he's left-handed, which is perceived as a handicap. And this is the person God chooses to deliver Israel from the king of Moab. Now, the last judge made sense. Othniel, okay, he is from the tribe of Benjamin. They're strong, they're mighty, he's brave, he's a warrior. Yeah, he can handle it, he's got the training. But remember, verse 10 tells us he had the spirit of the Lord on him. The same thing happens with Ehud, left-handed Benjaminite. He's the second judge that Israel has had. He is a man of direct action. And he had a perceived weakness, which actually became one of his greatest strengths to success. It became one of the keys to his success. His greatest perceived weakness became a key to his success. Pay attention to that because all of us at some point probably have felt an inferiority towards something that God has called us to do. Some moment in our life where we have gone, God, I am not capable. I am unable to do what it is you want me to do. Whether that's overcoming some personal, some personal challenge, some sort of sin in your life, or, or just challenge that way. Or maybe God is just asking you to do something that seems impossible. And you go, God, I'm a left-handed Benjaminite here. I, I, I don't think I can do this. And you're absolutely right because God doesn't look at what he isn't, he looks at the strength that he has that he can pour his spirit out over him. So he has a perceived weakness, which God uses to his advantage. Now, this is what gets really crazy. So they decide to create a nice gift to give to the king of Moab. Maybe we can make life a little bit easier. And so they form this gift and they, they kind of go on this peace walk and they go and they visit the king 
And Ehud presents the king with this gift. And he goes back with the rest of Israel. And they start walking out of the city. And then Ehud turns around. And he says, go on without me. I have some unfinished business with the king of Moab. And he goes back to the king. And he tells the servants, he tells the king, hey king, I have a secret message from God. All right, pay attention to this. He's got a secret message from God. So here he is, left-handed man, Benjaminite. He's got a secret message from God. And so what does the king do? He says, well, this sounds important. He tells all of his servants, leave the room. Get out, be quiet, leave me now. All right, pay attention to this. This is where it gets weird. Now, here's what we know about the king. He's raised up a, at least a powerful, a powerful army, enough to take over all of the 12 tribes of Israel. He is kind of the ruler of the world at this time, kind of like superpower, if you could call it that time, which means he's wealthy, he's rich, and if you're wealthy and rich, it means you're well-fed, and in this case, the king of Moab was extremely fat, and it tells us that right there. He was extremely fat. Well, what happens is, Ehud tells the king, I have a secret message from God. Clears the room, gets rid of the servants. Nobody's around. They're in the upper room of the palace, kind of on, like a room on the roof. It's nice and cool up there. And so Ehud gets nice and close to the king. And what he has done is he has fashioned for himself a two-edged dagger, a two-sided dagger. And he has it in his, on his thigh and he gets close to the king. Now the king doesn't suspect anything. Right? His right hand is out. There's no weapon. You know, if he was a great warrior, he'd be right-handed and he'd have a weapon. He gets close to the king, pulls out his left hand, and he stabs the king in the belly. And you think, okay, Gary, what's so weird about that? He kills the king. Well, it gets stranger. It says that he pushed the dagger in so far that the king was so fat that he let go of the dagger and the fat took over the handle. Kind of a weird picture, if you ask me. Just, just kind of a strange story. And you're like, Pastor Gary, is this in the Bible? Yeah, go read it in Judges chapter 3. The fat comes over top of the dagger. And so Ehud lets go. And in that moment, as the king dies, this is where it gets a little more strange, the king's bowels decide to relieve themselves. Okay? So he has lost consciousness. He has lost all control of his muscles, and his bowels do what bowels do when they're relaxed. And Ehud goes, okay, I'm not getting that dagger out. He locks the door, he leaves the room, and he escapes in secret and goes back to the rest of Israel. The servants have realized that the king has been upstairs in this room for quite some time. But their servants, they don't want to knock on the door. They say, well, you know, he must be relieving himself. This is embarrassing. We are not going to interrupt. And time goes on and time goes on. And they're like, somebody has to open this door and check on the king. They open the door. They find that he is dead. And by the time they realize that he is dead, Ehud has gone back to the Israelites. He has taken with him 10,000 troops. They march back to the city and they take over the king of Moab and they destroy their enemies and they regain their freedom once again. And they get to enjoy another 80 years of peace. A left-handed Benjamite who was no good, who is considered or perceived to have some sort of disability, fulfills an incredible moment of history and redeems and delivers the children of God. 
and they discover that they have peace for the next 80 years. Wow. All right. So, Judges got a little bit weird. Finally, we get to the end of chapter 3. Verse 30-31. After Ehud, the judge, came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. Now, I told you that this message had three judges, and it was going to be like a delicious sandwich. You got bread, you got bread, then you got the good bacon and cheese in the middle. Bacon and cheese is the story of Ehud, because that's a crazy story. And all we know, is about, all we know about this particular judge of Shamgar is that he killed 600 Philistines with basically a long stick, had a flat iron plate on one side, which he would use to clean the plow from his field. And on the other end of that rod, or the other end of that stick, that ox goat, it was kind of sharp and pointy that you would use to poke the ox as you were plowing the field, kind of as the motivator. Some of you need to be poked and prodded as a motivator. I know that I need a little bit of poking and prodding sometimes as a motivator. And what does he do? He takes this particular tool for farming and he kills 600 men. Now, obviously we, we know from the stories that he, God uses him and empowers him through his spirit to deliver, to protect, to help save the children of Israel. Simple, quick story. What's the point? You got this one man, this one judge from the strongest, most powerful tribe in Israel. God uses him. Big, mighty, strong. This is who I am, Othniel. Then we see God use a man from the smallest tribe of Israel. Not only does he take him from the smallest tribe of Israel, he takes a left-handed, disabled man, by at least their standards, and he delivers them from the hands of their enemies. All that to say, we come to this next story. We don't know hardly anything about this judge but he gives him a simple, practical tool, and he does amazing things with it to save the children of Israel. What is the point of me telling you these stories this morning? What is the point of me telling you this story at all? Big or small, disabled or strong, God can use you. Don't miss that. Big or small, disabled or strong, perceived weak or perceived strong, when God's Spirit comes upon you, you can do anything. God can use anyone. There is nothing that will ever hold you back if you are willing to surrender and follow the call of God. If you are willing to take a step of faith, if you're willing to go the distance, if you're willing to finish the battle, if you're willing to finish the race, if you're willing to go into the promised land that God has called you to, God can use you, big or small, man or woman, weak or strong. God can use anyone. Now, you know what I love about the story of Ehud? He fashions himself a double-edged dagger. You know what the Bible says about two-edged swords? Let's go to the book of Hebrews for a second. This is what it says. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is alive and active. What does it mean by the word of God? This book right here, the Bible. 
the Bible. We also refer to the Word as Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. This book is all about Jesus. Every single judge we're going to read about is foreshadowing to Jesus, our ultimate deliverer, our ult- deliverer, our ultimate Savior. That is what this book does. It shows the life. It prophesies the life. It foreshadows the life. It tells the story, and it shares the power and, and, and everything that comes with the Savior that God promised. The Word of God is alive and active, sharper than what? Any double-edged sword. So we see the incredible power of a double-edged dagger, enough to kill a fat king on the toilet. Okay? Most powerful man in the world probably at that time, killed by a two-edged sword. Now, God's Spirit was upon Ehud when he did that. Here's what's amazing. The Word of God is alive and active. And when it comes alive inside of you, when Jesus comes alive inside of you, and we wait on God, and we let the Holy Spirit fill us with God's power, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Here's our challenge for us today. Here's a couple questions that we need to ask ourselves. Here's the questions that I'm asking myself as I, as I speak and as I preach and as I teach this today. God's word will always challenge us. God's word will always move us closer to God's morality and away from our own standards. God's word will always draw us closer to him. This is, what it, this is my words for us today. When was the last time God showed me my faults? Or, in other words, when was the last time I let God examine my heart, examine my thoughts, examine my mind. It's exactly what the two-edged sword of the word does. When was the last time I said, God, is there something wrong in my life that needs correction? Is there something wrong in my life that needs correction? When was the last time you asked God and you had a come to Jesus moment? You repent like the Israelites did. You know, maybe you've been just suffering. And you know what? We are going to go through trials of many kinds. We know that. But maybe we're just like, why can't I never break through? Why can't I ever get past this next step? I know that I'm sure that God has something more for me. Why am I never getting over it? Have you taken the time to ask God to examine your heart and say, Lord, is there something wrong in my life that only you can deliver me from, that Jesus can deliver me from, through the power of his Holy Spirit, that he can help me overcome this sin or challenge or stumbling block in my life? God, is there anything there? First step. Next question. Have I asked God to use me regardless of my weaknesses? Have I asked God to use me to show his strength? You know, maybe you've, you've overcome, you've gone through the repentance, you've gone through the salvation. Like, yes, I'm a new person. I've been made new. I've been made whole. And the next step for you is to share that experience with somebody else. To show the awesome power of God that has taken place in your life. But maybe you don't know how to do that. And you say, Lord, like, how could you ever use me? Like, one, maybe I, I'm new to this faith thing. Or God, maybe I've served you my whole life and... But I just don't know what to do. God, can you use me? When was the last time you said, God, use me? When was the last time you just took a a minute to pray and say, God, would you use me? Would you show your power through me? Because when we live a life that celebrates the king, God will use us because he knows that we're humble enough. He knows that we're willing to allow his spirit to come alive inside of us. Number three, 
This one's, this one's uh, one that we're going to work on the next little while. And we all need to do this. At some point in our life, we need to do this, whether it's a practical part of our life. But spiritually speaking, have I made a specific plan? Have I taken the steps to make a specific plan to remain faithful to God? So one of the problems that we see with Israel, they're in this transition. They are moving from nomadic tribe people to forming a nation. And so at the formation of a nation, that's a good rhyme, what do we see? We have what we call a constitution that is sort of the guiding principles, the guiding foundation of any nation is a good constitution of any organization. You need to have a set of guides and processes and policies in place so that you can accomplish the mission that you have. You want to get close to God. You want to get used by God. Have you put a specific plan in place to say, okay, well, one of the ways I know that if I want to remain faithful to God is I have to remain in conversation with God. And so that means taking some time to pray, taking some time to read the book that is sharper than any two-edged sword. Do I have a plan in place to do those things? So that when the distractions come, when the persecution comes, when the stumbling blocks come, I know that I can remain faithful because I have a plan in place. And finally today, this one's kind of a bit of an open one. Is my life an example to others? Is my life an example to others? Is my faithfulness to God speaking and inspiring others? My challenge for me today is that God wanted to use Israel to bless the nations of the world. God wanted to use the people that he called to bring the rest of the nations into relationship with God. He set the holy moral standard. He said, this is how I want you to live so you can experience the fullness of this life. So that you can experience the blessings of this life. Even in the middle of our suffering and our pain, you can experience the blessings. God says, I want to use you, Israel, to bring the blessing to the world. So I need you to remain faithful. Is my life a blessing and an example to the world around us? God calls us to be a holy community. One that looks after our neighbors. One that looks after our enemies. One that looks after our friends. For those in need. Is my life an example to others? What's the point of this? Big or small, strong or weak, whole or disabled, God can use anyone. And God's faithfulness is just that. It is faithfulness. God's love is always faithful. It will never, ever let you down. Last week we sang the song, King of my heart. Let the king of my heart be the mountain where I run, the shadow where I hide, the ransom for my life. Because God, you are good, you are good. In the bridge we sing, you are never going to let, you're never going to let me down. God is always faithful. God's love is always faithful. And so when his love begins to move in our heart and his spirit comes alive inside of us, it fills us with joy, it fills us with hope, and it fills us with endurance to press on and take the land that God has called us to conquer. Leave no stone unturned. Leave nothing to allow a foothold for the enemy in your life. Don't be afraid to take a step of faith and let God's spirit come alive inside of you. 
remain in me and I will remain in you. Those are the words of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the love that you have shown to us. Jesus, I pray to you as the Son of God, as God himself. I thank you for the sacrifice, for the the pain and the suffering you went through because of your faithful promise that God would deliver us from evil. Lord, I thank you that you provide all of our needs. I pray for every one of us that are watching this this video today, in this moment, whether it's live or later, God, I pray that we would come alive inside of you would come alive inside of us, that we would respond and not be afraid to be used by you. Lord, may we not be afraid to repent and reach out in our moments of weakness. Lord, your love casts away that fear. Lord, would you bring us closer to you, draw us closer to you. Let us come, Lord, in our weakness and in our strength. May you be seen, Lord, through how we live our lives. Lord, big or small, strong or weak, I pray that you would use us for greatness, that you would use us for blessing, that you would use us for generosity. I thank you in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. If you would like prayer at all, if you need anything, if you want to take a next step of, in your faith, and declare that you want to get close to God, that I encourage you to send us a message right now. Click the like button, click the heart button, whatever you want to do. Would you reach out to us and say, Pastor Gary or Pastor Katie or Pastor Elizabeth, we really want you to get closer to God. And we want to help and equip you on your journey of faith. And so if you want to take a step of faith, then let us know. Because we, we will just pick up the phone and we'll call you. We'll have a conversation right now. But thank you so much. We look forward to seeing you real soon. God bless.